Hello, everyone. Welcome to the California Association of Tactical Officers podcast, where we discuss a variety of SWAT-related topics. We believe tactics are a science, and the art is in how we apply those tactics. My name is Marcus Sprague. And I'm Brent Stratton. Mr. John Becker, welcome to uh, the podcast. Uh, Brent and I asked John to sit down and talk to us a little bit about culture-centric leadership. So, John, if you could tell us a little bit about uh, where you came from and how you arrived at where you are today. Thank you, guys. I appreciate you having me on. Um, So I left high school at 17, started college, and started uh, a business called Aardvark Tactical. At that point, it was called Aardvark Enterprises that uh, sold rock climbing equipment. And right away, we started dealing with a lot of SWAT teams and special operations groups that were looking for harnesses and ropes and carabiners and things that that I sold. Uh, I started the business in my mom's den, literally. And, uh, you know, several years in, started dealing with more and more SWAT teams and spec ops units. And they would ask me to get other things. Hey, can you get us Eagle Nylon gear? Can you get us chemical agents? And I didn't know anything about it. I grew up in a military household, but it was not, it was not a tactical household. And uh, I knew nothing about that stuff. And so I'd say, well, I don't know anything about that. And they'd say, oh, come down, you know, we'll put you through a class. You can sit in on our training. And uh, so the business drifted in that direction. Uh, I finished college, went to law school. While I was in law school, I worked at LAPD's police litigation unit as a clerk. Most of my focus was on law enforcement litigation. And by the time I'm 25 years old, I've, I was fortunate enough to be through thousands of hours, 2,300 hours of training. Um, and it turned out that the guys that brought me up were Sid Hale and Ron McCarthy and Mike Hillman and, you know, all of the legends of SWAT, who at that time were, were just sergeants and operators and, and my clients. Um, so I ended up in a very unique position where I was kind of brought up in the community without being a part of the community. And the business continued to grow, started to do large-scale military integration. And now, 32 years later, um, you know, I find myself running a, a bigger business than I've ever run and a more critical business than I've ever been able to, you know, imagine. So where and how did you develop your application of culture-centric leadership? How did that come into your life? So one of the things about an entrepreneurial business, about about starting a business yourself, is is ultimately you have to do everything initially. You know, I was the the order packer, the accountant, the sales guy, the CEO, the you know bathroom cleaner, the furniture chooser, and as the business grows, you start to realize there are certain jobs that you're good at, there are certain jobs you're not good at. And I realized that I really needed to understand how to lead people. I needed to understand what motivated people. And, and I was very lucky because the people that surrounded me were some of the best law enforcement and military leaders uh, in the country at the time. And, and now we look back at with reverence. And so I was brought up by a lot of good leaders who indirectly mentored me and helped me to not only understand what was important in business and what mattered to them as my end user, which permanently shaped Aardvark's culture, but also helped me to understand how leaders should act, which had I gone to business school, I don't know that I would have had that same experience. And as I tried to understand and teach my own leaders 
how I wanted them to lead, I began to take apart the lessons that I had learned and put them together. And, it, and this whole program actually started with an article that I posted on LinkedIn, um, which was, I think, like three different three three business lessons I've learned from tactical teams. And the response to that blew me away. I, I emails from all over the country, people wanting to republish it. Um, Cato picked it up and ran it as an article, which then led it to it being a, a bigger article, which then led to me teaching it um, kind of all over the place. And it's it's a work in progress. It's constantly evolved. But I feel like um, each of the the principles that that we talk about in the in the program are anchored in experiences that I had with the teams that I serve and with the leaders that that you know mentored me and and kind of led to this thing just kind of organically developing those were some pretty big names buddy you you had a what I would call a force multiplier in your uh in your knowledge base to learn from all of those guys at the same time it, it's it is you know looking back now it's really amazing you know it's like saying yeah i learned to hit from babe ruth and frank sinatra taught me to sing and uh you know bill gates taught me about computers but that really was kind of my experience and and it's it's amazing because the people we now regard as as just titans of the tactical community whether it's ron or or sid or or rk miller um you know, it's those guys were so generous with their time and so willing to take a 19 year old kid that knew very little about what they did and and train them. Um, and now, you know, 30 years later, when we're still friends, it, it's I look back with just reverence on on the amount of time those guys spent with me and the amount of effort they put into me. And, you know, I really believe that that successful entrepreneurs are, are people who can recognize opportunity, but there's so much luck. There's just so much, you know, meeting the right person at the right time. And, and for me, that actually was Sid Hale was one of the first people that, that I met with Aardvark and became friends with and eventually taught with and, and wrote articles with. And, and it, it really kind of revectored my career. And each of those guys had a profound impact on my leadership style, the business, and ultimately who I ended up being as a human being. And John, you know, Marcus and I have been lucky to get to be a part of a couple different um, programs with you, but specifically Cato's uh, Strategic Leadership Program, which is a compilation of lessons learned from, uh, you know, Sid and RK and Ron McCarthy and a lot of those guys. And you got to play a very central role in that. And you've been able to help develop and challenge a lot of our uh a lot of our thinking and what we think is unique about you is that while you're successful in business and have built a business that has a natural relationship to the tactical community, um, some of your lessons as it relates to leadership, specifically culture-centric leadership, translate from the business world, which we don't know anything about, to the law enforcement world. And some of the things that you talked about w with me was uh, and with our group was culture-centric leadership and and. Uh, I look at, at your presentation um, and I, I keep some of the PowerPoint slides with me and I look at them, you know, once once a week or so and just uh, to make sure that I'm kind of um, I'm kind of keeping uh, keeping myself fresh on uh, 
on what culture-centric leadership looks like. It's something that resonates very well with me. It's um, a typical question throughout an organization. What's your leadership style? And, and, and you know, you, you hear people talk, well, I, you know, an adaptive leadership style or I'm a servant leader. And for me, I really like your definition of, of, of culture-centric leadership. And one of the things you talk about is organizational culture which is big. It, every every organization has a culture, right? And I really like your definition. You talk about the values, beliefs, morals, practices, customs, and behaviors shared by the members of an organization, whether intended or not. And that last part is always significant to me. And you know, we talk about how unintended culture is a failure of leadership, and it's a failure from, from uh, top to bottom, and that we need to, to build simple and singular messages um, throughout our organization, I think that message is, is really needed now within law enforcement where we're kind of grappling with where are we, where are we going, what is, what, you know, what is, what is that we should be doing, what is our message, there's enough pessimism out there, there's enough people to say, oh, it's changing, uh, you know, law enforcement's not the same, and the laws are changing, and California's a messed up state, uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to take part in those conversations, I want to see this is a, this is a, opportunity for us to be impactful and that those listening to this podcast are leaders within the tactical community are leaders within their department to set and and change that culture so what kind of a message do you have for us i guess to um to relate that to those that are listening and and, uh, what they can do to to help impact and set the tone for their culture within their their organization so let me take on just first the the concept of change because i think we fear change and and what I've learned now after 32 years of doing business is change is inevitable. Everything changes all the time. And if you are not evolving, you are stagnant. And so, you know, there is there is constant change that will take place. Some of it change that you want. Some of it change that's forced on you. Some of it change for the good. Some of it change for the bad. If you dig in your heels and you resist change, generally speaking, what happens is change will make a decision without you. You know, there's a, a Rush song that says, if you, even if you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice. I've learned over the last 30 years to embrace change, to embrace chaos, to embrace moments of transition. And sometimes those transitions are small, and sometimes those transitions are big. And in the, in the time that I've done this, I have seen numerous episodes in law enforcement where we've seen big changes. Rodney King being an example of that drove big change. And, and of course, not everything that happens when you change is good, but generally speaking, change evolves the organization. Change makes you better. And, you know, it's, you know, the, the thing for me is there are a lot of things that, that are forced on me because of regulations, because of rules, because of, you know, vendor problems or, or changing mission sets. And we're constantly trying to adapt to what our clients are doing, what the government is doing, which is a difficult moving target. The more you embrace the movement, the more able you are to maneuver within it. And so I have learned to look for the good in the change and try to mitigate the bad rather than fearing it as a concept and digging in and saying, no, you're not going to change me. That's not going to happen because what will happen if we do that is it will run us over. And, you know, to, to talk about culture, culture ultimately is what drives our behavior. You know, there, yes, there are rules, there are laws, there are regulations, but ultimately culture drives our behavior. And, you know, as you mentioned, you know, culture is your values. It's your 
beliefs, it's your morals, it's your practices, it's your behaviors. Um, and if you think about it, every group has a culture. And, and sometimes that group has a culture based on formal rules, and sometimes it has it based on casual rules. We all have, you know, a group of friends that are maybe our church friends, or maybe our business friends, or maybe our parents' friends, and we behave a certain way around them. And then we also have our buddies, and we behave considerably differently around them. And those two groups, if they were to mix, um, would probably both be surprised. The, the thing that you have to understand, though, is, is what makes you behave the way you do with your buddies is the culture that you have there. And what makes you behave the way you do with with your church friends is is the behavior, you know, the, the culture code that, that lies in that group. And so ultimately, you, you're going to form a culture in any group, any organization, any team, any group of people, whether you want it or not. It's going to happen. Um, and so as a leader, you have to recognize that you are creating culture constantly. And sometimes you're creating culture by accident. You know, if you're a leader that shows up 20 minutes late every day, then you're teaching people that you show up 20 minutes late. It's not that important to be on time. Uh, you know, the, the Monell decision, which was the, the seminal case in civil rights that established, you know, civil rights liability for state and local agencies, talks about a policy, practice, and custom. And why didn't they just say a policy? If you have a policy that, that violates civil rights, that should be enough. Because frequently you have a policy that says one thing and a practice or custom that is something else. As a leader, I think probably the biggest message is culture has to be an intentional thing. You, you can't allow it to happen automatically. Uh, one of my favorite sayings is that, you know, everybody has a reputation. And whether you, whether you want one or not, you're going to have one. And if you don't pay attention to it, you're probably going to have a bad one. And that's true with culture, too. If you are not looking at the culture of your organization, if you are not looking at the things that you indicate are important to your people, then a culture will develop without you. So make it an intentional thing constantly. Yeah, man, that's uh, I think we see that a lot uh, within organizations that all of a sudden you, you wake up and you look and there's been a critical incident that's occurred. And it's been, hey, how did how do we get to this? this right here what were their you know their normative behaviors that we that we ignored or we just accepted because this is how we do things like you said everybody's got policies and everybody's got procedures and this is how we do things but what is that that's actually being done at two o'clock in the morning at the corner of walk and don't walk right and that's what a culture within an organization truly is it's not what the chief says on a uh or the sheriff says on a, at a press conference, it's what are our people actually doing? And, and that's what our culture is. And that's what I think, like I said, we need to do uh, to be very in, intentional about setting and, and seeing how we can, um, how we can get the product that, uh, that we want. It's, it's a bit like your kids, right? Like, you know, if, if, if you smoke four packs a day and tell your kids not to smoke, your kids will smoke because they will model the behavior you demonstrate for them. If, if your kids see you lie, your kids will lie. If your kids see you cheat people, your kids will cheat people. Because that is what you have taught them. The behaviors you model as a leader are the behaviors that your people will follow. And I think, unfortunately, in so many organizations, both private and public organizations, 
we have a leader that's out front saying one thing, but then behaving completely differently. Or, you know, he has employees that are behaving completely differently. Um, you know, you look at just the Hollywood scandals that have come out and, and for harassment and, and those kinds of things. And it's like, you know, yeah, we're saying we're inclusive. We're saying that we're going to do the right thing. But then we're settling all these lawsuits so we can protect the head of the organization. That's that's sending a very clear message that that, you know, what they're saying doesn't matter. And the same is true in, in any business, whether it's whether it's law enforcement, whether it's a baseball team, whether it's a SWAT team, whether it's a you know, a, a private organization, the the behavior of leadership and the things that leadership focuses the attention on will be what people will act on. And, and whether you drive that intentionally or not, you're driving it. One of the things that uh, I like in, in your, your principles and your presentation that you talk about is to have a plan and make sure everyone is aware of their role. You include a, a, a quote that's attributed to Vince Lombardi that says hope is not a strategy. And one of your bullet points you talk about is to achieve any objective as a leader, you must have a desired end state. Now this is something that is no different than um, Sid Hale talks about in, in his book, right? And having that end state is uh, something within our culture to be able to identify what is it that we want to be. And he talks about, the, or where is it that we want to go? And then what's the plan that we're, we're going to build to be able to get there? And that the end state needs to be uh, communicated uh, throughout the entirety of an organization. Now, the bigger the organization is, the more difficult that is for a leader to be able to ensure that at the line level, their end state has clearly been uh, communicated. Can you talk to us a little bit about what that might look like? So I, I think, and, and Sid actually was the one that taught me about end state, uh, Sid and Tim Anderson um, and Dick Odenthal through tactical science were the ones that really um, made in state make sense to me because, you know, and it's one of those things that you hear it and you're like, Oh yeah, yeah. But when you really stop and think about it, you realize like, yeah, this is totally true. Like if I, if I said, Hey, I'm going to go on vacation. The first question you'd ask me is where are you going? And, and if I said, well, I don't know yet. Well, you're not going on vacation. You're driving aimlessly, right? And maybe driving aimlessly is the objective and that's okay, but you need to, that needs to be, a plan and and in order to plan in order to get anywhere you have to know where you're trying to go and as a leader especially when it comes to culture you have to determine what does this organization look like when it's done you know originally i used to read mission statements that were up on walls and in, in businesses and and military organizations and think you know it's kind of stupid why would they do that now i realize that commander's intent really matters and communicating your intent really matters and as an organization, you have to know where you are trying to go. I have to make it clear to everybody that works for me where I want to end up. Because, you know, if, unless you're going to micromanage everybody and tell everybody what to do every day, which is a completely ineffective leadership principle, the right answer is, hey, guys, this is where I want to go. This is what it looks like when we're done. I always tell the story of, you know, it's one thing to say, you know, I want to go on vacation to France and, and, you know, that's what I want to do. It's a different thing to say, I have this vision of myself and my wife sitting on the Champs-Élysées, looking at the Arc de Triomphe, eating a crepe, wearing a beret, right? Those conjure up two completely different images in your head. And the more meat I put on the outline for you and the more I convey the mood 
and the the emotional aspects of it so that it resonates with you the more clear it is the more likely you are to remember it and the easier it is for you to decide how do we get there and not just how do we get there at the top how does how does the graveyard watch commander help us to get to our objective um, to do that everybody's got to be aware of the of the role they play in the end state everybody has to understand and it doesn't mean that they have to have a detailed plan of you know Marcus, this is what you're going to do on Wednesday nights from 2 a.m. to, to 4 a.m. It's Marcus, here's where I want to go. And this is what your role is in making that happen. And we see that we see that a lot in patrol, right? And, and the do you know that the stuff you do every day on every single call for service affects and communicates the mission, vision, and values of your department? And when you don't understand that, you do things that are contrary to that. And that's the leadership's fault for not translating that and explaining that how important every part of that organization is. And if I'm understanding what you're saying. Yeah, hundred percent. And the thing is like, you know, LAPD, I think they put the statistics out earlier this year that they have, I think it's like a million contacts a year with the public. And of those, a remarkably small amount result in force and an even smaller amount result in lethal force. But if you look at what's happening right now, police departments are being judged by the single act of a single person. So tell me that one person doesn't affect the culture, right? Look at these cities where you're seeing the chief resign, the assistant chief resign, you know, six police officers being filed and tell me that that one person didn't have a profound effect on that organization. So yes, everybody affects the organization. And it's easy to think that the people at the top are the really important ones. In my experience, a receptionist will do more damage to my business than I could possibly do. Right? It takes it takes one person being hung up on. It takes one order being wrong. It takes one person getting the wrong gear, somebody's gear failing. Every single thing we do matters. And so if that's the case, how do we know what really matters? How do we know what's really important? For us, we look. I, I, I focus our entire energy on three things. Order accuracy, on-time delivery, and client satisfaction. If I can get you what you need and you're happy with it and it's on time, I've, I fulfill my mission. And there's a hundred metrics that go into all of those things. And, and that supply chain might involve 20 people and 75 documents and everything else. Ultimately, what matters is that you get it, it's on time, and you're happy with it. And, you know, that's, you know, that translates to police departments well. Um, if you talk about, you, you never know um, that something's happening unless you measure it. And so to that bullet point, you talk about if it matters, measure it. And people do what's inspected, uh, not what's expected. So I think there is a, a direct correlation there that it's, I think it's very common for new supervisors to give um, their their expectations oh you know at a shift change here's here's my expectations here's what I believe and, and that's all and that's all fine and dandy but if you don't go back and ever look to see what's actually happening if you don't go in and check and get an idea of what's occurring then you truly don't know what your ground level truth is and you're truly not spending the time looking for it you don't know whether it's accurately happening 
like you think it is, like your policies say they are, like your procedures uh, say they are, then you truly don't know what your culture is. You're going to walk around fat, dumb, and happy thinking your culture is great because you've written you've written down the policies and procedures, and policies and procedures are great. That's, act, that's, that's needed to have some of those parameters. But unless you're going back and checking it, and you gave those three metrics of things that, that you're going in and checking, and unless we're conducting some form of, a, of an audit or going in and, and looking at things and getting ideas about what's actually happening, then... I would tell you that leaders probably don't really know what the culture actually is within their organization. Yeah, it's funny. You know, I, I used to see when I, when I started my career, inspections were a much more formal thing in police departments. They've gradually become less and less formal. But I, I remember going to a, a special ops unit and they were going through a gear inspection. And, and I was there with a, a former member of the unit. And I said, like, what's with the inspection? These guys are tier one operators. They're professionals. Like, why is this happening? And he said, people do what's inspected, not what's expected. And I don't know who the originator of that quote was, but it is 100% true. And if, if you question the validity of that, ask yourself, what would I weigh if I wore sweatpants every day and never got on a scale? Right? Everybody would be fat. I mean, hell, everybody is fat. But in this community, everybody's focused on, you know, their fitness and their body composition. And so they're weighing themselves. You know, they, they might they might measure their waist. They might measure their one rep deadlift. They might measure how fast they run a mile. They, they do all those things. And, and the top units are constantly testing, you know, like why does LAPD make D platoon members go back and run an obstacle course after on their, they're on the team? Because everybody's fit that way. And nobody can lie to themselves and go, oh, now I could probably still run a six-minute mile. It doesn't matter whether you probably could. It matters, matters whether you actually could. And so if you really care about it, you better measure it. And I'm not saying you measure 100 things. You have to get it down to the metrics that you run the organization on and the metrics that you really care about. In a SWAT team, that might be accuracy. It might be fitness. You know, It, it might be a variety of things. In, in an organization, obviously, police departments qualify for a reason. And if you look at departments that qualify farther and farther apart, their shooting accuracy goes down. Why? Because knowing you're getting on the scale makes you eat better. And, you know, also the flip side of that is if I tell you these are the things I'm going to measure you on, those are the things you're going to pay attention to. Yeah, the, uh, you know, one of your bullet points in the notes that we took in your presentation says the things you choose to measure your people on are the things they will regard as important. So, again, it's if uh, if they know that this is what, uh, you know, the the lieutenant or the captain is going to come down and look at, then this is definitely an area that, OK, this is important to them. Then I'm uh, this is something that I need to pay attention to. This is something I need to work at. This is something that. I need to, that's important to the boss, it's important to me, right? That doesn't mean that there's not things that are important to you that you can't do as well, but I think that goes hand in hand with identifying what the end state is. So you're going to clarify what your end state is, what your main goal is, and then you're identifying the things that you're going to come in and measure and you're going to spot check and you're going to take a look at so your people know that that's what's important. And now you're getting an idea of what your culture is. You're starting to actually then um, hopefully build, uh, build and then check on a, a, a culture that is healthy and that's ethical and that is getting you in the direction where you want to go. The, the funny thing about it is if, if you don't, if you are not intentionally measuring things, right, if you are not deciding, here's what I really care about. Frequently, what you do is you create incentives that undermine your actual mission. And, and I can give you an example. So if, you know, I always say people are led, things are, are, are managed. 
Human beings are not managed, right? Quality control systems are managed. Computer systems are managed. Things that can't run themselves are managed. Human beings are led. And if, if you look at yourself as a manager and you say, well, my job is to make sure that they get here on time and that they leave on time. And you know what? Showing up on time and leaving on time should be implicit in the job description. You shouldn't have to measure that. But if that's what you're focused on, if what you're focused on is how long somebody's lunch hour was or how long their break was or, you know, how many things an hour do they put out the door? How many tickets do they write? You are focusing them on very small and really kind of assumed tasks, right? Your job is to do, you know, to show up at a certain time, to leave at a certain time. If you can't do that, you shouldn't have the job. But what do I really care about what you're doing in the time that you're doing that? And how do I convey that to you? And everybody's worked for managers or known managers that are focused on the wrong things. They're measuring just remarkably stupid stuff. You know, somebody's punctuality or, you know, their penmanship or, you know, things that, yes, are important, but should not be the primary focus of the leader. And so what you end up being is a manager. You end up watching your watch and, and counting how many emails people send and, and measuring stuff that is not taking you to your end state. We and see that a lot. focus them on that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we see that a lot, especially in government work. And if you look at and you examine uh, the evaluation system, right? And uh, we usually pick things that are easy to measure. Or you see that on SWAT, right? We pick things that are easy to measure. And it's not that they're not important, but just because they're easy to measure doesn't make them the most important. And you're seeing this movement in law enforcement right now, and it's largely because we failed to do it on our own. So now outside influences are, are going to come in. And, and how do we measure decision making? How do we teach that? And how do I document that in an eval that this person is a good decision maker? And that's what we need. But how do you measure that? I can measure your fitness. I can measure your shooting. I can measure your ability to know case law. Uh, I can measure how you drive. But how do I measure decision making, say, which I would argue is just as important as those other tasks. Because if you make the wrong decision, it doesn't matter how accurate you're shooting if you're shooting at the wrong thing. Yeah, it's funny. We we probably five years ago, six years ago, I decided that evaluations were a waste of time the way we were doing them, right? Because we were taking measurements and saying, okay, yeah, you know, you're a 4.5 on this, which is really a random ass number, right? Like I, I don't care how much you try to put a fine pencil on it and, and quantify it. It's a random number. And, and so what we decided to do was completely abandon our evaluation system and go to a 360 degree evaluation where you're evaluated by your peers, you're evaluated by a supervisor, who you also evaluate, and you're evaluated by people that work for you. And the idea behind it was, let's try to get a 360 degree view of the person, but let's not do it based on numbers. Let's do it based on statements. And let's not look at, oh, you know, do they show up on time? And, and, you know, do they have good phone manners? And do they smell good? Let's look at what people really care about. And so we measure on competence, integrity, and teamwork. And, you know, the, the built into that is reliability. Because if you're good at your job, I trust you, and I can count on you, I kind of don't care what else you do. And if your peers feel the same way, you're most likely going to get us there. 
And when we started using that as an evaluation system, we really shifted the conversations in evaluation. It went from, well, you got a 4.5 on, you know, punctuality to, hey, three of your peers rated you low on candor. And, you know, the way that the evaluation system works is there's five statements. And the statements are randomized every time you do an evaluation. So you can't just go in and pick, oh, three, four, or five. You have to read the statements. And the statements are things like, I can always trust Marcus will tell me the truth. Marcus is a liar. Marcus is about as honest as anybody else. Marcus is frequently deceptive. Marcus is generally truthful unless it's in his own interest. You're going to pick one of those. And your peers are going to pick one of those. And you know what? If we have six people that say that Marcus is deceptive, one of two things is happening. Marcus is deceptive or Marcus is giving people the, he, the impression that he is deceptive. And either way, that's a real problem for Marcus and it's a real problem for the organization. And so we really tried to look at evaluations as a means of counseling and helping people to improve their own brand within the building. And, you know, every once in a while, yeah, you, you get one where you're like, oh, my God, everybody thinks this guy's, is a, this guy's a liar. We need to dig a little deeper. But generally speaking, most people blow off evaluations, give everybody a four or a five, and you really don't learn anything. And that was our goal was to really, if we're going to take the time to measure this, let's really learn what people think about this guy and also how he sees himself. Because if, if, if Marcus thinks he's the most honest person in the world and everybody that works with Marcus thinks he's a liar, we have a real problem. And that's not always an and that's not always intuitive, right? So I've I've taken a few of those self assessment centers and uh, I filled it out myself, right? <laughs> and yep. and even then the results I'm like, oh, well that's kind of surprising. And why yeah, is that it, surprising? It really, I filled it out myself. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Like it's 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 funny because you start to see patterns with people. And over, over, you know, a couple of years of evaluations, you start to see these patterns forming with people where you're like, okay, people do not see this guy as reliable. And realistically, your coworkers need to believe in you. They need to believe you're reliable or your, your team is going to be less effective. Um, you know, kind of going back to the beginning of this, like my view of a leader is your job as a leader is to get 100% out of your entire organization. Every single person, every single resource to maximize all of those pieces to yield the best result you can. And, you, you know, you're never going to get 100 percent, but your objective is to get 100 percent. And so getting 100 percent out of Marcus is a different thing than getting 100 percent out of Brent. And what drives Marcus and what drives Brent may be different. And the way I, the way I lead Marcus may be different than the way I need, I lead Brent. But if I don't understand Marcus and Brent, I'm never going to get there. And as a leader, if my job is to get as much as I possibly can, then I'm failing to do my job when I treat Marcus and Brent as the same person and use a blanket evaluation system or a blanket measuring system that is not focused on the objectives of the organization. And we see that intuitively People do do that. When we manage our SWAT teams, we know people's strengths and weaknesses, and Brent and I fall back on the Tim Anderson square peg, square hole, right? But when it's not working, when that intuitive little bit that we do, which is I would argue is surface most of the time, right? When it's not working, it's because we didn't take that deeper dive, that, that systematic approach to what am I looking at and how can I, how can I fix this problem? Did Brent, did I interrupt you? 
No, man, I, I think that's that's great. That's that's on point exactly where we're talking about. And 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 John's really hitting on something for me that we talk a lot about leadership and you talk about, you know, what you know, from a top down view of what leadership is. And, you know, maybe it's a, a tip of the hat to extreme ownership and 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 Jocko Willink and what that looks like leading up the chain of command. But John, some of the things you talk about are what is it that that people want in leaders. So if this is a blind spot for you and you don't realize that you're perceived as a certain way, then then how can we work to to uh, change what those perceptions are or to, to be of better service to those that, that we lead? And, and yes, service, because we do believe that we serve those uh, those who we lead as well. And, and some of your philosophies are that um, there are four main things that people want in a leader, which is competence, predictability, integrity, and compassion. And a lot of these things go without saying, but for me, the predictability is a big component. Um, for somebody to not have to ask mother, may I all the time or go and, and constantly ask the boss, well, what do you think about this? What do you think about this? To spend a lot of time understanding what the philosophy is, understanding what uh, the end state is, understand what is measured, leads me to know, okay, well, this is what I know what my boss is looking for. If I bring him this problem, this is probably what he's going to say. This is probably what they're going to think. This is probably how she wants this done. And you're able to, to go for there. So being looking introspectively and making sure that you're, you're reflecting that uh, down the chain of command for your people. So, so let's, I mean, you, you brought up predictability, which I think, you know, kind of competence, predictability, integrity, and compassion is really what we want from a leader. It's what we want from a spouse. It's what we want from friends, right? We want people who, who are good at whatever we need them to do. We want them to be honest and, and have morals and values. We want them to care about us, to care about others and be kind. And we want them to be predictable. And, you know, if, if you as a leader have people that are surprised frequently by the things that you tell them to do, you are doing a terrible job of leading them. You know, you, you brought up Jocko's book and, and, and I mean, Jocko and Leif did a brilliant job with that book. It is, it is extremely, that, that is the classic warrior poet where, you know, those guys dug very deeply into themselves and looked at like, really, what do we need to do? And you know what, as a leader, you need to both manage up and manage down. And, and what, what that means is in part being predictable so that the people, you know, if, if anybody walks into my office and, and says, Hey, you know, I, I want to do this and, and I'm surprised by what they want to do. I have failed to lead them correctly. Most of the time, my conversations with the people that work, my direct reports are, Hey, I did this. You're cool with it, right? Because they know what I want. They know where we're going as an organization. They know, for, for me, the one question is always, how does it affect the end user? That's what I care about. The business part of it matters. The, the profitability part of it matters. Ultimately, we don't sell bell issues. You know, everything, everything that we do has somebody's life hanging in the balance, as, as is also the case for you guys. And so what really matters is take care of the end user. Make sure that the end user is safe. And you know what? Everybody that works for me is going to make a bad business decision. Everybody that works for me is going to cost me money. They're going to make a stupid mistake. And they need to understand that when they do, they can walk in and go, hey, I screwed this up. Here's what I learned. And I'm not going to fly off the handle. I'm not going to scream at them. I'm not going to lose my cool. I'm going to say, okay, how do we prevent it next time? What do we learn from it? Let's keep moving forward. 
if I become unpredictable, you know, there's an old psychological experiment that everybody probably heard about in basic psychology where they, they take a group of monkeys and some, they put a, a shock plate under the monkeys. And some of the monkeys, every time they feed them, they shock them. Those monkeys are fine. They don't particularly like the shock. They're fine. They eat. Another group of monkeys, they never shock. Those guys are happy. They eat all the time. Third group of monkeys, they randomly shock. They periodically will shock them. And it's unpredictable. Those monkeys starve themselves to death. Because unpredictability is terrifying. And you've all worked for somebody who's emotionally volatile. As a leader, we do not have that luxury. We do not have the ability to bring our personal crap to work and dump it on the people that work for us. You need to be predictable. You need to be reliable. You need to be consistent. And you need to be fair, which is part of consistency. And yeah, you know what? You might drink beers with this guy on Friday night, but if he screws up, he's treated the same way as somebody else's. Individual accountability is absolutely essential in leadership. You know, the one of the other areas that we talk about too outside of uh, predictability is the competence and i think there's a natural tendency for leaders to feel or to put themselves in a position that hey i'm the leader i should know this um to to uh, to go man it's embarrassing to say i i don't i don't know this and i've i've seen that happen quite frequently where my expectation of our bosses is not that they know everything. As a matter of fact, the higher up you go, I believe the less um, of an expert you should be and the more of a generalist you're likely to become. And so I expect a certain level of competence, and I think our people should expect a certain level of competence from us. But take a little bit of pressure off yourself. I don't believe that you're supposed to be the expert in everything that you're doing. So um, – transitioning from predictability can you talk a little bit about uh, about competence as it relates to leadership yeah I, I you you bring up a really important point which is you know there, there is a natural desire when you are tasked with leading something to be the guy with the right answer and, and what i've learned repeatedly through painful lessons is my job is to get the right answer not to have the right answer and ultimately as the leader of an organization the leader of a team your job is to get to the right answer and most of the time, that answer will not come out of your head. Um, in fact, I find frequently some of my best ideas are the ones that are, are you know, the most widely torpedoed. Um, so, you know, it is, it is a very common thing at Aardvark to hear me say, hey, make me smart on this. Tell me where I'm wrong. Um, we, we socialize things in a very broad way because what I care about is getting the right answer. I don't care about being the right answer. You know, one of the things I talk about is, is socialized loss, socialized gains and personalized losses. When the team wins, you guys did a great job. When we lose, I pick the wrong strategy and I'll do a better job next time. The problem is we, we tend to have leaders who look at it exactly the opposite way. Every time we win, they're standing there beating their chest. And every time we lose, they're looking for somebody to fix the blame on. And, and that is a, it's, it's, you know, it's a lack of confidence on the part of the leader. But ultimately, like I said, your job is to be the guy that gets to the right answer, not to be the guy that wins it. And if, if, if you look at it as, you know, take a SWAT team where you've got 15 guys, that's 15 computers that are all running the problem in a different way. And if you really think that one guy is going to outpace those 15 brains, you're out of your mind. You know, you're, you're either, you know, either so egotistical that you're not looking at reality or you, you lack so much self-confidence that you're afraid to ask for help. 
in either case, you're in the wrong position. And, you know, and it can't be disingenuous because people will, will smell that out if you stand up there and, and you say, oh, this was I, I picked the wrong strategy and we won. But you don't you don't actually mean it. You don't actually live it. People people can tell that the authenticity that's that's needed for that to be able to relay that and and um, and, and, and say that and speak it is is something that can't really be uh, it can't be can't be created. It can't be. It can't be faked. I think in order to be that authentic, uh, that that authentic leader, and to feel it in there, that that's something that you that you have to that you have to truly believe. And if it's something that you truly believe, and your heart is into it in that way, that kind of leads you to the the area of compassion where you're talking about, right? Where you're bringing um, uh, the compassion and some some kindness, some concern that that uh, the level of fairness as you've outlined in there for the people that you're that you're working with and for the job that you're doing and that's something that i know we don't talk about compassion a whole lot in law enforcement but i think that is something that is uh the how how deep it is it's something we don't we don't talk about it we don't talk about it enough and the level of compassion that we have for the people that we're working with the 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 citizens that we're um that we're serving the victims that we're dealing with and i think that's something that um people need to see from from their leaders yeah, it's funny because, you know, I've, I've spent the last, well, I spent my entire adult life immersed in a testosterone-laden culture of, of hairy-chested, tattooed frogmen, policemen, SWAT operators. And, and you know, the, the impression of someone who doesn't operate in this industry is that, you know, all of these guys are just big, rough and tough, you know, um, hard asses. And the funny thing about it is the most compassionate people I know are cops. Like if you think about the things you see, right? Oh, you know, this guy's kid has cancer. Well, what happens? The entire department rallies around him. Guys give up overtime. They donate money, right? That that's compassion. And, and yet it, it, we've, we've kind of created this machismo culture where it's okay to be compassionate about that, but it's not okay to be compassionate about the guys you lead. And realistically, you know, you, you ask any military operator, you know, who are you fighting for? He's fighting for the guy next to him. He's not fighting for large scale ideals. Yeah, you know what? Those things matter to him. But ultimately, in the end, when it comes down to it, human beings fight for each other. And as leaders, we need to constantly be fighting for the people that work for us. And they need to know. And, and if you're not, if you're not somebody that cares about other people, don't promote. Don't take a leadership job because you're going to screw it up. And from a leadership perspective, you you won't trust your leader. If you're going to if you want your people to trust you, they have to first understand that you're predictable and and you, there's some logic to your reasoning, right? And then they have to know you care. If they think you don't care about them, you, they'll never trust you. So, you know, one of my favorite Maya Angelou quotes, which is cited often, is I've learned that people will forget what you've said. People will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. And, you know, we all have an experience, whether it was in school or the academy or in college or high school, where somebody humiliated us. And, and when they did, what they demonstrated was that they had no compassion for us. They made us lose face. They embarrassed us. They shamed us, whatever. Those, the effect of that is searing. It scars you. 
I mean, you know, just talking about this, I'm sure everybody's remembering like, oh my God, my high school gym teacher, you know, like we all have that experience or experiences and, and leaders have an asymmetric power over the people that work for them. You know, it's, it's, you are always in an asymmetric conversation as a leader. I can say things to the people that work for me that they cannot say back to me. And implicit is that I better be compassionate. I better care about them. Because if I don't, they know it, right? Everybody listening to this podcast has worked for a leader who is only interested in themselves. And, and, and nobody wants to be that guy. But, but yet we get into a position of power, we get into a leadership position, and all of a sudden we're like, yeah, well, they're just going to do what I want them to do. No, they're not. I would actually argue that the higher rank you go, the more vulnerable you are and the more you serve the people doing the work. Absolutely. My, my job is to provide resources and safety for the people who work for me. And, and, you know, their job is to do the same for the people that work for them or the clients that they work for. And, and if we lose sight of that, we lose sight of our primary objective. You know, my primary objective is to serve my end user. And, and, and in order for me to serve my end user, I better care. Now, I was lucky because when I started Aardvark, the guys that I was putting armor on were my friends, right? They were guys that were going to be in my wedding. I was going to be in their wedding. We were going to the, you know, going to the lake together. Like they were friends. So it was really easy for me to care about them and really easy for me to be emotionally invested in them. As the business grew, that culture didn't leave. Um, you know, and, and what I've learned is as a leader, my job is to protect the 19-year-old Lance Corporal standing at a checkpoint in Afghanistan, even if the people above him won't. And, and if I care only about that, if that is my prime directive, and that's what, you know, drives me every day, I will make the morally right decision, even if sometimes it's not the financially right decision. The same is true for the people that work for me. I mean, the number of times that we've, you know, bent rules and, and, you know, mustered the troops to help the people we work with, like my job is to provide them resources and safety. And if I can't do that, I'm a terrible leader. You know, the compassion component to it, the, the flip side of compassion is how it then leads into to passion. And this is an area that we see a little bit more frequently in that, you know, people who are passionate about the job within your organization are also going to be people that have strong personalities and and strong opinions. Um, and I think organizations, uh, specifically law enforcement organizations, are uh, a lot more used to to seeing that. And I know that can be difficult for some leaders um, as well. But you know, one of your bullet points outlines how strong personalities are the key to any organization's success. And if you can find people, I believe if you can find those strong personalities who are willing to speak truth to you, that's going to help you avoid making uh, some of these mistakes. Find those people. I think in 
certain cultures within law enforcement, you'll find leaders that want to push those type of people away. They feel like their leadership is being challenged. When I find people like that, I want to hold them closer to me because they're not the people that are just going to tell you how everything is great. I don't want to surround myself with people like, oh my gosh, you're so great. Oh my God. I want, I want people who are going to tell truth. Tell me the truth. We're going to talk about what things truly are, what our culture actually is. What are we actually doing? What is it that's really messed up that we need to fix? How can we do it? Getting to that ground level truth, right? We talk a lot about leadership and getting look, look top down, but you know, you got to have a, a bigger perspective. You want to have that 10,000 foot level and th those things are great, but none of it matters. If you can't get back down to ground truth, find somebody who's going to give you that ground truth or go see it yourself and then bring it back up and look at the application to it. Can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, those strong opinions and, and, and passion in people and, in, uh, in what that looks like for you in a leadership? Yeah, it's funny, I guess, you know, Growing up in the abusive environment that I did, surrounded by SWAT teams, I got very used to people saying things like, wow, you're getting kind of fat, huh? And, you know, saying, no, you, you know, you're wrong. And, and so I learned at a very young age to take scathing criticism. And it was one of the best lessons I ever learned, because the thing with people who have strong personalities is you can trust them. People who will tell you, you know, your ass looks great in those pants, even when it doesn't, are the people that will watch you drive off of a cliff. And so many times in organizations, we want to surround ourselves with people who say yes. We want to surround ourselves with people whose opinions agree with us. We have a huge problem in this country of surrounding ourselves with an echo chamber. No matter which side of the political debate you're on, generally speaking, people watch one news channel that agrees with their views. The problem with that is if your views are wrong, you're surrounding yourself with people who are also wrong. And, you know, again, my job is to get to the right answer. And the right answer comes from diverse opinions. The right answer comes from surrounding myself with people who will tell me the truth, even when it's awkward, and who will challenge my thinking, and who will tell me I'm wrong, and, and do it frequently in a passionate way. Right. Because the, the person that knows the most and, and I've seen this in the, in the 30 years I've done this, I've seen so many times the gun nut in, in the police department. Right. The guy that is the gun guy. Everybody marginalizes. They make fun of him. You know, they're like, oh, yeah, I know he's the gun guy. And so then they go pick a new gun and he's not involved in it because they've silenced him by making fun of him and by marginalizing him. And they pick something stupid. When the gun guy the whole time is standing there going, yep, you guys are making a mistake. You guys are idiots. You're going the wrong way. But nobody listens. We, we, we want to get the right decision. We don't have to be the guy with the right decision. So you've got to surround yourself with people that will disagree, that will study. You know, passionate people tend to study the things that they understand to a very deep level, way deeper than you will ever understand as a leader. And yeah, people have to understand that their perspective sometimes isn't a complete perspective. They won't always be right, but they have to have a voice. And you have to create an environment where people collaborate and they appreciate the voice of other people, even when sometimes they speak their truth in a way that is not, you know, totally fuzzy and warm. Um, you know, Jeff Bezos said years ago in an interview, our culture is friendly and intense, but if push comes to, to shove, will settle for intense. And, and I absolutely agree with that. I think that I do not trust people who always agree with me. 
In fact, even in my personal life, if I find somebody who's like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And they never go, yeah, you're crazy. I don't trust them. I'm, I'm, if you look at my direct reports, I have a lot of very strong personalities who frequently will come in my office, close the door and go, you're wrong because. And I believe that there are huge mistakes I would have made over the years that have been saved by getting diverse opinions and by allowing people to speak their truth to me, even when it hurts my feelings. And frequently it does. But again, my job is to get the right answer. Sometimes it's not going to be mine. How do we create that right culture in our organizations? So I, I think, you know, we've talked about a lot of the things that I think are really important. Um, you know, I think I think it's essential. A couple of things we didn't touch on. I think it's very important that we build a higher purpose for our organization. And, you know, we human beings are motivated by other human beings. And, and, you know, it, it's funny because when I started my business, I started to make money. I was like, you know, I'm, I'm going to start a business. And I'm going to make money. And, and I didn't really understood what that meant. What I now understand is that was never, you know, after about the second SWAT team I worked with, that stopped being my mission. Yeah, it, it, it is part of the business and it's, you know, it's an important skill set to have and all that. But ultimately, our organization exists to serve an operator. Your organization exists to serve the community. And, and even within your organization, everybody on a shift exists to not only serve the community, but to keep each other safe and serve each other. And the leaders, your watch commanders, exist to keep their guys safe. And, and those are really high, important purposes. And I think that those purposes, they've got to, they have to be emotionally resonant and and they have to transcend making money or getting overtime or whatever. And I think we're so inclined to try to measure everything and go, well, you know, how many arrests did they make and how many tickets did they write? And, you know, really ultimately metrics, metrics matter for measurement, but metrics are not what drive us. You don't get up in the morning as an emergency room physician working in a COVID unit thinking I'm going to get four hours of overtime today. Right. You get up and think, I'm going to save somebody's life today. Because as human beings, that's what we care about. Right. I mean, human beings exist because of our ability to collaborate. If we didn't communicate and collaborate, we're not a particularly effective animal without those two things. Right. Take any human being, put them out in the wild by themselves. They will not last very long. But our ability to communicate and collaborate are anchored in our evolutionary biology, they're anchored in this innate drive to help each other. And so your organization has to have a purpose at its core and a set of guiding principles that allow people to connect emotionally to the mission. And, you know, I think, I think implicit in that also is, is driving individual accountability to the mission. Right. Everybody, and we touched on this briefly, everybody's got to be personally accountable to the mission. Everybody's got to understand what we're trying to do and how we're trying to get there. And when somebody goes off reservation, they need to be held accountable. They need to be held accountable by their peers. They need to be held accountable by their leadership. And and, and in the case of, of government, the case of law enforcement, they have to be held accountable by the community. And and so we've we can't allow as leaders anyone 
to go off reservation and and start to depart from the primary objective of the organization. Couldn't agree, uh, couldn't agree more, John, as we talk about driving that individual accountability. That's not something that we talk about a whole lot in law enforcement. Um, the you know, Even the phrase accountability conjures up ideas of, of discipline, um, but getting to the idea that we are accountable to um, to the the cities and, and the people with which we serve and uh just I, I think you're really touching on on a lot of important things about being able to um set something a higher purpose for a department that's something we don't talk about a lot it's very easy to focus on the next call or the next crime or solving the next crime or or doing these things but i think now in these challenging times and what we're seeing throughout Throughout our country, I think it's very important for us to be able to take the opportunities and try to find what that higher purpose is for your um, organization. What exactly is that for your department? What is it that's going to resonate and inspire your people to, to help reaffirm that this work is important, that this work does matter, and not to buy buy off on, on what you're seeing on the 5 o'clock news or who's loudest on social media, what they're saying about law enforcement, but to take this opportunity to really look and be introspective and identify what is it that that's, uh, that we're passionate about? What is it um, that this job means to us? And what is it that we're trying to do and pushing that throughout our organization? I think our people need to hear that uh, now more than ever. That's what we really hope that the people that are listening to this podcast are taking that and they're taking it back to their departments, to back to their organizations, whatever job it is that they're doing. And that's, they're identifying that they're, it's the, it's the Simon Sinek, it's getting to the why, right? It's the things that matter about that and explaining it and putting it in a way that relates to people and inspiring. And that's a, that's a component of your job um, as a leader too. And that's what uh, that's what we need right now, and and um, you've helped be a um, uh, somebody who's helped provide that for Marcus and I and countless other um, people throughout the the tactical community, and we're we're thankful for for that for the role you play there. That's been my pleasure. I mean, it's ultimately, you know, I, I've I've had the pleasure of serving men and women who will put themselves in harm's way for people they don't know. And really, in the end, that is the greatest act a human being can do, is place themselves into harm's way for someone they don't know. And, and if you look at what any of our teams do, any of our agencies do, any of our first responders do, you are willing to put yourself in harm's way for other people. And, and it's it's very easy to lose track of that. It's very easy to lose track of the fact that, you know, yeah, it's a job and, and everybody takes it for a different reason and all that. In the end, this is this is a selfless act. And I think as a community, we need to remember that, you know, every human being that puts a badge on places themselves in a position where they may give up their life for somebody that they'll never even meet. And, you know, it's, yeah, it's easy to become cynical and it's easy to judge the entire community based on, you know, single stupid acts by single evil actors. But in the end, like the where the Constitution meets the road, where our freedom meets the road is is the men and women in, in our state and local law enforcement. And so it, it's we need to invest in in developing our leaders and in creating the strongest people we can to, to help protect our operators. Um, 
you know, it, it's, I think probably like if I had one, one thing to, to leave you with, it's you have to care more about the people that you lead than you do about yourself. Um, Sun Tzu said that regard your soldiers as your children and they will follow you into the deepest valleys. Look upon them as your own beloved sons and they will stand by you even unto death. We have to serve the people that we lead and that means that they are, you know, we talk about priority of life in law enforcement. In, in, the, in the priority of life as a leader, everybody below you is more important than you are. And it's very easy to flip the org chart upside down and think I'm the most important person in the organization. The farther up that pyramid you are, the less important you are. Uh, a lot of people, I don't know if they know this about you, but you majored in philosophy uh, before in a previous life, I believe. Is that true? My undergrad, yeah, and then before I went to law school. So you are part philosopher, part warrior, part CEO, and uh, and we appreciate that. We need that outside point of view. And I, I have met very few people that understand our culture, the good and the bad, uh, that aren't in it. And uh, I always appreciate meeting those people because they they teach me the things that I don't know, and you're you're definitely one of those people. Hard work would not have happened if the community had not invested in me. My entire career is built on the investment that this community made in me. I will owe it for the rest of my life. I don't know how we follow up on that, Brent. That's kind of, that was so well said. I don't think we yeah, can Yeah, I don't afterwards. think we can at all, man. I think we're best to just uh, to wrap it up. And thank you, John, for taking the time. We know you're incredibly busy with the uh, the the business that you run and the, all the different uh, things you're involved in. And, and we just uh, thank you very much for taking the time to talk with us and, uh, and the folks in our, in the Cato community. And uh, we appreciate it. And we'll look forward to, to seeing you at the next Aardvark lecture series uh, whenever the COVID world allows. Thank you guys. Thank you for listening to the Cato podcast. To become a member of Cato, check out our website at catonews.org. If you have a topic suggestion, please send them to podcast at catonews.org. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend and rate us on the platform of your choice.